1929, Gerald Holland wrote in American Mercury magazine, Whatever odium may be attached to beer in other parts of the Republic, its status in St. Louis is as firmly grounded as James Eads' span across the Mississippi. Beer made St. Louis. And he was right. As we've proven in past episodes, beer was indeed the lifeblood of St. Louis. And empires rose and fell because of the public's taste for a well-crafted brew. The Lemp family came to prominence in the middle 1800s as one of the premier brewing families in St. Louis. For years, they were the fiercest rival of Anheuser-Busch and the first makers of lager beer in the Midwest. But today, they're largely forgotten as actual people. They're more remembered for the mansion they built than for the beer they once brewed. They've been reduced to roles as spooky characters in a horror story, rather than as living, breathing personalities that once shaped the history of the city. The history of the Lemp family is true American tragedy, one of triumph over opposition, hard work, perseverance, genius and madness, eccentricity and passion, horror, death, and suicide. It was played out against the backdrop of America's changing landscape of the late 1800s and early 1900s. It's also the story of the beer industry in St. Louis, the German immigrant experience, and a riveting look at the lives and deaths of those for whom money truly was no object. In 1926, author F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, Let me tell you about the very rich. They're different from you and me. Fitzgerald may not have been writing about the Limp family, but he could have been. The Limps were very different from you and me. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. This is the third installment in our series within a series about the history and hauntings of the Limp family of St. Louis. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend that you go back to episode 19 and start the series there. That serves as the introduction to the Limp family and their importance in St. Louis history. This episode will take a closer look at the beginning of the end of the Limp Brewing Empire. In the midst of the family's greatest success, tragedy struck, and the family was never the same again. The Limp story is a legendary tale of an American haunting, but it's also a story of heartbreak and sadness, too. That's something we should never forget, as the beginning of the end of their story starts to unfold. From the late 1880s to the early 1900s, America saw a surge in the demand for beer. 
These were prosperous days for the brewing industry, and the amount of beer being made increased with each passing year. William Limp was at the forefront of this exciting time. His brewery was the first to establish coast-to-coast -coast distribution for its beer and to compete on a national level. William had created an intricate distribution system, maintaining branch offices in hundreds of towns and cities across the country. While many of them were nothing more than small ice houses located near railroad depots, others were substantial operations with large warehouses that were designed to take orders and make local deliveries. At first, railroad cars were loaded with huge amounts of ice to keep the beer from spoiling while it was en route, but when advances made it possible to refrigerate rail cars, William immediately incorporated the idea. He was soon transporting his product in more than 500 refrigerated cars, averaging 10,000 shipments each year. He even bought his own railroad, the Western Cable Railway Company, and connected the brewery with shipping yards near the Mississippi River and from there with all of the country's major rail lines. With ownership of a railroad, advances in bottling and pasteurization techniques, and the vastly increased potential to reach hundreds of thousands of new customers, limp beer was being shipped to every corner of America. It was during this era that advertising became so important for brewers like Lemp. Local customers already knew how good the beer was. Now they had to make sure that everyone in the country knew about it too. In those days, the most common advertising method was to run ads in local newspapers and place display cards in stores and taverns. But once they started shipping beer outside of the area, it became imperative for them to use labels, trade names, and symbols to advertise their beer. They also began using national expositions and competitions, which awarded medals and prizes to the best beers to advertise the high quality of their wares. As one of the country's first national brewers, William Limp was well aware of the importance of advertising in a quest for a larger share of the beer market. One of the first areas he explored was a redesign and a standardization of the labels for the company's various brands of beer. He moved away from the flowing, ornate designs of the past in favor of a simple Limp Shield trademark. The new labels were basically the same design with additional text describing the beer. Two varieties of limp beer were standard, the basic limp lager, and extra pale. In 1899, William introduced what became the company's most famous brew, Falstaff. The beer was named for Sir John Falstaff, a comic character in Shakespeare's Henry IV and the Merry Wives of Windsor. As the irresponsible, fun-loving companion of Prince Hal in Henry IV, Falstaff is portrayed as gluttonous and bawdy with a wonderful sense of self-deprecating humor. Well, William saw the jolly Falstaff as the embodiment of a rollicking good time, and he wanted drinkers to associate the feelings conjured up by the classic lovable buffoon with what was to become Limp's most popular beer. Pictures of Sir John Sue began appearing in many of the Limp's advertising posters and cards. In addition to labels, William also used scores of promotional postcards. Over 130 different designs were produced during the brewery's heyday, many of them humorous and many of them using photographs of the massive Limp Brewery. One of the postcards featured the tall smokestack with the name Limp proudly emblazoned on the brick and an early airplane soaring off into the sky on the right. The postcard is printed with the caption, Falstaff is the first bottled beer to be delivered by aeroplane. Another postcard showed a flimsy-looking plane with a wooden crate of Falstaff beer being loaded on board. It was printed with the same caption. Apparently, there was a story behind these two advertising cards, one that indicated that the caption was, well, not entirely accurate. The Limps were supporters of early aviation. Lewis Limp even became a pilot. And these two postcards were often handed out at flying events that were sponsored by the brewery. 
They had been issued to celebrate the first delivery of beer by airplane in the world, which allegedly took place in 1912. Well, according to J.D. Smith, an early airplane pilot and mechanic, he was hired to follow an aviator named Tony Janis as he flew from St. Louis to New Orleans. The flight was sponsored by the Lint Brewery, and as a publicity stunt, Janice was supposed to deliver a case of Falstaff beer to the mayor of New Orleans, a gift from the mayor of St. Louis. Smith followed Janice by land, ready to lend a hand if anything went wrong with one of the aircraft's engines. The flight started in St. Louis with the mayor and several officers from the brewery strapping a case of Falstaff to the wing just behind the pilot's seat. The flight was made in short daily hops. On the first day out, Smith, who met up with Janice at a pre-designated landing strip near the Mississippi River, noticed the pilot seemed to be in an exceptionally good mood. When he looked closer, he realized the pilot had opened the case of beer during the flight and was happily enjoying his 12th bottle. Janice explained that the plane would fly much better if the case were empty. So the mayor of New Orleans never received his case of St. Louis beer, and while Falstaff may have been the first beer to be delivered by air, it didn't happen on the flight that was piloted by Tony Janice in 1912. Many other promotional items were given out to saloons and to individual consumers. Items included glasses that were etched with the limp logo, corkscrews, beer steins, mugs, letter openers, serving trays, and much more. The brewery's clever advertising introduced limp beer to scores of new customers every week. So much money was rolling into the company coffers that construction of new buildings and updating of old ones was virtually continuous at the brewery complex. By the middle to late 1890s, the brewery was employing more than 700 men. Over 100 horses were being used to pull 40 delivery wagons in St. Louis alone. Even more beer was being shipped across the country and beyond. After expanding the distribution network throughout America, William continued to expand overseas. By the turn of the century, limp beers were being shipped to Canada, Mexico, Central and South America, the Caribbean, the Hawaiian Islands, Australia, Japan, and Hong Kong. Limp beer was even available in London and Berlin, which were already well known for their local brews. By the early 1900s, the Limp Empire was in its glory. The company was the largest brewer in St. Louis and now the eighth largest in the United States. With Americans still having a powerful thirst for good beer, business could only get better and the brewery owners could become even wealthier in the years to come. But dark clouds were already starting to gather on the horizon. In the midst of their greatest happiness and success, the Limp family's troubles were about to begin. By the turn of the century, the Limp Brewery covered 11 city blocks, if the count included the extensive shipping yards that were located along the Mississippi River. It was producing over 500,000 barrels of beer every year, with annual sales of more than $3 million, which is equal to $76 million today. They employed more than 1,200 men and produced six brands of beer, Tip Top, Standard, Extra Pale, Tally, Kombacher, and of course, Falstaff. They used more than 600 refrigerated rail cars to get the beer to the marketplace and shipped it throughout America and to ports around the world. The future certainly looked bright for the company and for the limps themselves as the new century dawned. But in truth, their future was anything but bright. 
Just one year after the new century started, the first in a series of tragedies occurred with the death of Frederick Lemp. The events that followed his death became the first indication that the once mighty empire was beginning to fall apart. Although he was not the oldest of the Lemp sons, it was Frederick that William always believed would take over the company someday. Frederick was passionate about the business and about beer in a way that none of his brothers were. He and his father were very close and shared an intense need to take the company just as far as it would go. Just as William had expanded the brewery after the death of his father, he knew that Frederick would lead the company to even greater success in the new century. But of course, that wasn't meant to be. Frederick was always something special, though. His older brother, Billy, had been named for their father, but Frederick had been named for William's closest friend, Frederick Pabst, the founder of Milwaukee's Pabst Brewery. The Limp and Pabst families had been close for many years and eventually intermarried two times. Pabst had always considered it a great honor that his friend had named his son after him, and Frederick, in turn, honored the name by devoting his life to beer. As a young boy, he followed his father to work each day. While his brothers and sisters were off playing, he was in his father's office or talking to the workers on the brewery floor. Frederick received a degree in mechanical engineering from Washington University, where he was also a popular member of several social and fraternal groups, and then he graduated from the United States Brewers Academy. As soon as he was finished, he returned to St. Louis and went back to work at his father's company. As dedicated as he was, though, Frederick still managed to live a life outside of the brewery. In 1898, he married Irene Verdon, with whom he would have a daughter, Marion, and split his time between work, his family, and a life in St. Louis social circles. He was a happy, good-looking young man who was often described as friendly, hardworking, and ambitious. Frederick worked hard alongside his father. He spent long hours working on plans for the brewery's expansions and concentrated on distribution networks and advertising, but he never complained and he never failed to complete any task that was put before him. He spent his days at the factory and his evenings with his wife and his friends. He was in his mid-twenties and never felt that he needed to slow down. There would be time for rest in the future, he believed. And then he got sick. At some point in the summer of 1901, Frederick began to have trouble breathing. After collapsing one day in the brewery offices, the family doctor ordered him to rest. His health didn't improve, though. He wasn't getting enough oxygen for his heart to beat in the way that it should. So it was suggested that a change of climate, away from the humidity and dust of St. Louis, might be beneficial. So Frederick, Irene, and Marion packed up and went to Pasadena, California. Perhaps the sunshine and dry air might do him some good, and for a time, it did. In early December, William and Julia traveled to California to visit and were pleased to find that Frederick seemed much better. He was active again and seemed more like his old self. William returned home to St. Louis confident that his son was on his way to full recovery and would soon be back at his side at the brewery. But Frederick never saw St. Louis again. Soon after his parents departed, he suffered a relapse and he was confined to his bed and he never left it. Frederick died on December 12, 1901 from heart failure. He was only 28 years old. His young wife became a widow with a one-year-old daughter to raise. Irene never remarried. The Lip family in St. Louis learned of Frederick's death by telegram. They'd assumed he was getting better, so the news of his death was a great shock. It was especially devastating to William, who was stunned when he heard what had happened. Brewery Secretary Henry Volkamp later wrote, The grief of his father was most pathetic. He broke down utterly and cried like a child. It was the first death in the family. He took it so seriously that we feared it would completely shatter his health and looked for the worst to happen. 
Henry Volkamp would be the one who chronicled the breakdown of William Lemp, who would never be the same again. In his grief, William ordered the construction of a large family mausoleum in Bell Fountain Cemetery as a tribute to Frederick. When his body was returned from California, he was entombed there after a movie memorial service. No one could imagine at the time just how many family members would be joining Frederick in the mausoleum in the two decades to come. William Limp had always been a volatile and passionate man, even though, as a good German, he kept most of those feelings bottled up inside. His ability to hide his feelings were what made him a good businessman, and his drive for success was what propelled the Limp Brewery from a small local company into one of the largest in the nation. He was a man of great passion, capable of excitable highs, and, as his family and friends soon discovered, horrific lows as well. When Frederick died, William plunged into an abyss of despair. Henry Volkamp, his close friend and secretary, felt that he would never come out of it. His friends, even the workers in the brewery, admitted that he'd become a different man after his son's death. He slowly withdrew from the world. Public sightings of William became rare. He began to walk to work each day using the cave beneath the house because he didn't want to speak to anyone on the street. Before Frederick's death, William had taken great pleasure in personally paying the men each week. He also would join the workers in any department and work alongside them in their daily activities or go among them and discuss any problems or questions they had. He took great pleasure in teasing the chiefs of the various departments of the brewery, asking them questions that seemingly had no connection to the business of the day. In order to answer, his men had to not only keep an immediate record on their minds, but they also had to know something about the entire history of their department. After Frederick died, these playful practices ceased almost completely. When he did visit the different departments, it was apparent he was just there to pass the time. William was distracted, disinterested, and his joking manner and quick smile were absent. This went on for nearly two years. During that time, he never took part in social activities and was frequently absent from family gatherings. The only places where he could be counted on to be were locked in his office at the brewery or visiting the mausoleum where Frederick had been laid to rest. And then one day, the clouds seemed to lift, at least a little. William eventually found peace and a few hints of a return to his former self began to appear in his manner. He finally seemed to have come to grips with Frederick's death, but his peace didn't last. On January 1st, 1904, William suffered another crushing blow with the death of Frederick Pabst. The loss of his oldest, closest friend, not to mention his beloved son's namesake, sent William into a dark spiral. He became even more withdrawn and soon became indifferent to the details of running the brewery. Under Henry Volkamp's direction, Billy and Edwin were forced to step in and do what they could. William still came to the office on some days, but paid little attention to what was happening around him. He was nervous, unsettled, and filled with grief. By February 13, 1904, his suffering had become unbearable. That morning seemed to be an ordinary one for William. He rose at his customary hour of 7 a.m. and took his time in his personal bathroom, which included a barber's chair, a marble tub, and a massive glass-enclosed marble shower stall that was the first of its kind in St. Louis. William had imported it from an Italian hotel for his own use. After dressing, he ate breakfast, but remarked to one of his staff that he wasn't feeling well. Rather than go to the brewery, he excused himself and went back upstairs to his bedroom. Then, 
At 9.30 a.m., Williams shot himself in the head with a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. Only the servants were in the house at the time. Julia had gone shopping downtown and Billy and Edwin were at the brewery. One of the servants, after hearing the gunshot, rushed to Williams' bedroom door, but she found it locked. She immediately ran to the office to find Billy and Edwin. They hurried back to the house and broke down the bedroom door. Inside, they found their father lying in the bed in a pool of blood, a bloody wound at his right temple and the revolver still gripped in his right hand. At that point, William was still breathing, but unconscious. One of the boys telephoned the family physician who came at once. He was soon followed by three other doctors, including one that was the former head of the city hospital. They examined William, but knew there was nothing to be done for him. The wound was fatal, they said. All they could do was wait for the end. Meanwhile, one of the staff had managed to reach Julie at a downtown department store, and her driver rushed her home. She arrived only moments before William took his last breath. He was pronounced dead at 10.15 a.m. William had been dressed for work when he shot himself. There was nothing to suggest that he planned to commit suicide or that he even contemplated it. It was as if he suddenly decided that he didn't want to live anymore. There was no suicide note. While it's likely that William took his own life in a fit of depression, there's no way we'll ever know for sure. The motives that he hid deep in his heart will always remain a mystery. A short time after the shooting, the limp home was closed to everyone but relatives and those who had been summoned by the family. Brewery employees were posted at the front of the house to intercept callers and newspaper reporters who flocked to the scene when word spread of the tragedy. All the curtains were drawn and the mirrors were draped in black. A dark silence settled on the house, which might have appeared vacant if not for the grim-faced brewery workers who were stationed outside. Billy and Edwin refused to speak to the newspapermen who had gathered. Edwin returned to the brewery office for a short time in the afternoon, but he turned away everyone who came to offer condolences. He did confirm through his assistant that his father had committed suicide, and the only explanation that he could give is that he was despondent over the deaths of his son and his friend, Frederick Pabst. Henry Volkamp agreed with Edwin and later wrote, Mr. Limp had been looking extremely bad for some time. When he came back from the funeral of Captain Pabst, he was a changed man. They were lifelong friends and the relations between them were very close. So much so that Mr. Limp felt the death of Captain Pabst as keenly as that of his own son three years ago. I remember when he received word of Fred's death, how he went into the street and paced up and down. I walked with him and tried to console him, but it was useless. The death of Captain Pabst brought the former trouble back on his mind. He brooded over these matters constantly. I exchanged greetings with him yesterday and noticed that his condition was the same as it had been ever since his return. Before the funeral could be planned, family members had to be contacted, and they were literally all over the world. Charles was in Chicago and bought a ticket on the first train coming home. Annie was on a tour of the Orient and her husband Alexander was in Europe. Hilda and Gustav rushed to St. Louis for Milwaukee when the news reached them. They were accompanied by Elsa who was in Milwaukee for a visit. Lewis was on his way back home from a trip to Japan and his steamship was due to arrive in San Francisco on February 16th. He finally arrived home along with Annie after the funeral had taken place. Services were held in the Lint Mansion on February 14th. The body was placed on display in the south parlor next to the conservatory, which was filled with plants and flowers. Before the funeral took place, more than 1,000 limp employees filed through the house to view the body and pay their last respects. The brewery had been closed for the day. Once the long stream of men, most of them openly weeping, had departed, family members and friends gathered for a simple memorial service. 
After the service, a procession of 40 carriages traveled to Bell Fountain Cemetery. Julia, Elsa, and Hilda were too grief-stricken to go to the burial ground. Eight men who had worked for William for more than 30 years served as pallbearers and honorary pallbearers, included many notable St. Louis residents, including Adolphus Bush, who had liked and respected his principal competitor. William was laid to rest next to his beloved son, Frederick, and they were reunited at last. There's no question that William Limp left an indelible mark on the city of St. Louis and the history of American brewing. He was well-liked, admired, and praised by not only his friends and the people of St. Louis, but also by his competitors. He was a modest and unpretentious man who did business fairly and honestly. He could dine with the cream of St. Louis society and drink a beer with the lowliest worker on his payroll and get along famously with both. His employees saw him as not only a good boss, but as a man that they knew they could go to for aid and advice. Even though most people didn't know it because it was not his way to speak of his own virtues, William gave away immense sums to charity each year and never thought of his generosity as anything special. He was a fine man, but one who allowed his grief and his pain to get the better of him, ending a good life before its time. William's death was truly the beginning of the end for the Lent Brewery. Despite some continued success in the decade to come, it would never be the same again. The family would soon be buried under an avalanche of scandal, death, and despair like nothing they had ever seen before. And before it was all over, the Limp Empire would be lost for all time. Frederick was always something special, though. His older brother, Billy, had been named for their father, but Frederick had been named for William's closest friend, Frederick. Fuck me. God, what, a, what is the problem here? I cannot get this out. <clears throat> and I'm not hurrying. I'm just not getting it together here. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 21, which is the eighth episode of season two, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. And here we are on episode 42 of the Limp Family. Oh, no, actually, <laughs> it feels it's like just it. three. But, um, well, who knew? We didn't know. We, we, didn't know uh, we didn't know how long St. Louis in general would end up being. Uh, people have asked, how many Still episodes are you going to have in this season? Uh, we don't know. Still don't so know. So we're, yeah. we're, we're just going to keep going. And the Limp thing, um, I, I, this was actually everything that you heard was actually supposed to be uh, episode 20 and 21 were originally supposed to be one episode. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I sent Cody a message and I, and I said, um, how would you feel about at least five episodes for right. Limps? So we're, we're still, we're, we're only halfway through the story, folks. So we still have a little bit more to go. Um, so we, we hope that you're enjoying it um, because there is much more 
um, you know, I wouldn't say murder and mayhem, but definitely more mayhem to come. That's that's for sure. And speaking of mayhem, Haunted America Conference. Yes. That's my speaking of uh, for the day. Nice segue. Um, yeah, not really, but it's it wasn't bad. It so, works. Um, if you are are enjoying the show, if you if let's say you were at our Dead of Winter event, or uh, unfortunately maybe you missed it, but you can still listen to the episode that we we put up. We did a live show. Uh, at our Dead of Winter event in February. We're going to be doing another live recording at the Haunted America Conference in June. Uh, it won't be so much of an episode, more of a kind of a special episode that we'll be putting in um, as part of our Strange Stuff uh, presentation that's done every year at the conference. We've been doing that for quite a few years. But uh, the conference itself is going to be a blast. We've got speakers uh, and authors coming in from all over the country. We've got ghost hunts, events, ghost tours, workshops, you name it. Um, it's, it is probably, I know, you know what, without a doubt, it is my favorite weekend of the year. And uh, we get to see and meet a lot of new people every year, and it's a lot of fun. And uh, we hope you'll come. And if you're thinking about coming, we hope you decide to do so soon because time is running out. Um, I know that it's, uh, the time you're hearing this, uh, it's the beginning of May, and it seems still a ways off, a month and a half away. Um, but it's not. And at the time we're recording this, uh, there are less than, I think there's about 80 spots left, which they go pretty quick towards the end. So if you're thinking about coming, get signed up. We, we really want to see you there. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And we'll, uh, we'll have a booth there uh, at the, in the vendor's room. And then we'll be doing uh, our, our show there on Friday night. So that, that should be fun. And I, I loved it. And it's so funny because last year, whenever I went to that conference, it was I think three days before our first episode. Yeah, I don't came think it out. even aired yet. It yeah. hadn't, and yeah. now so this we're recording the twenty-first episode, and we'll have a couple more episodes out before uh, that event. So a lot has happened in that time, yeah. and I'm yeah. really excited to, to have a booth again. And I couldn't believe last year how many people kept pouring in. Oh yeah, I, I didn't yeah. know what to expect, but it just wouldn't stop. It yeah, was crazy. It's, it's fun. It is. A, it's a really fun weekend, and we we hold we hold it right in Alton, Illinois, at the Best Western Premiere. Uh, which is sort of our home away from home sometimes, mm -hmm. and uh, it is it is a lot of fun. So we hope you'll see you there. So, hey, well, before we get started, uh, let's take a quick break. Before we get started on this episode, I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who picked up a copy of the new edition of Haunted St. Louis. Uh, a little behind the scenes here, we're actually recording this on the day after the book came out. It was released on Friday the 13th, and it was really great to see a lot of the uh, podcast promo code in there for people who are listeners to the show. Uh, so if you aren't familiar with that, uh, just put podcast into the promo code when you check out, and you'll actually get 10% off the price of the book, and you can get... A really a deep dive into a lot of the stories that we've been talking about on the podcast this season. So anyway, thanks again to everyone who picked up a copy. And uh, if you haven't gotten one yet, we hope you will. Thanks. Okay. Uh, well, I want to start off um, just by saying if anyone knows where to get any limp beer or <laughs> remade limp beer or whatever, uh, let us know because I've been drinking Anheuser-Busch the whole time we've been doing these and I feel a little weird. You feel like a traitor. I kind of, yeah, well, so sort of. A little you, bit of betrayal you know, we, Well, we talk about it a little bit more, but, you know, uh, <laughs> they did have a rivalry, but it seemed kind of civil from oh, yeah, my very, understanding. Yeah, very, very. Um, and I respect that. But uh, I would love to see what's around if, if anything is around Well, I know, anymore. like I said, I know a few years ago, and when I say a few, it may have been seven, eight years ago maybe or mm -hmm. something. I know there was someone, and I think they were in Pennsylvania, who were producing a limp beer again, but I don't know if that's still around. Yeah. Um, I guess we should, you know, I've heard there's this thing that you can look for things on. I think it's called Google. 
I'm, uh, not, I'm not positive on that. Oh no! But I think it may be, and and maybe we should check. On I was going to send a postcard <laughs> by horse and buggy in honor yeah. of the limps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so or by airplane. Well, exactly. So, yeah. And so that's You're funny because I'm I'm I want to talk a little bit about uh, the limps and their advertising because you know they said they were one of the first they were the first to establish coast to coast distribution of yeah. their beer and the, you know they were so crazy ahead of their time and so rich that you okay, bought their own railroad company yeah, essentially yeah, to connect with the brewery to all the major to a, to connect to a hub really which is genius yeah. and then oh, and, yeah. and said in those days the most common um, advertising method was to run ads in a local newspaper uh display cards in stores and taverns but then they also did some you know plane things that we'll talk about later but our airplane things i'm surprised why didn't they just drop a bunch of postcards from these airplanes i know that's a that's a that's an interesting idea and you know the funny thing about the railroad thing and i i didn't mention this but one of the main reasons that william bought his own railroad is because the railroad companies were getting so angry because all the brewers were filling their cars with so much ice Mm. that it was too heavy to run the train. Okay. And so he's like, well, I know how to fix that. And he just bought his own railroad, you know? So, I mean, that's what happens when you have that kind it's of money. Re- real world, you know, like this, monopoly. I know kind of this stuff. surreal, you know, amount of money, you know, and in those days, that was just incredible wealth. And yeah, but, but you're right about the airplane thing. You know, why didn't they just bomb leaflets over yeah, the city? Yes, of St. exactly. Louis? I guess because everybody in St. Louis already knew how good the beer was kind of thing. Right. right? So, um, and, and airplanes were a little trickier, you know, in those days than yeah. they are now, you know, and that, that airplane in 1912 couldn't even fly directly from St. Louis to New Orleans. They had to just kind of do it in, in hops. So a guy follows in a car on the ground. Yeah. Right? That you know, was that's, so crazy to yeah, me. I was like, yeah. was this airplane driving, uh, going really slowly? Yeah, well, or, I, they didn't move very fast. just fast work? enough to fly, I guess. Uh, and, and, and so, okay. Is this true that when, <laughs> when they got this guy on the ground that he, he really drank 12 beers yeah, on his like, first hop? Oh, yeah. So yeah. he should have got it. He should have got an FUI or, <laughs> an FWI, <laughs> yeah. but 12 beers is a lot to do anything. I know. Honestly, well, right, exactly, you know, like, let alone fly a plane. And oh. and you know it was a plane made of, like, balsa wood right. and paper, you know, or, like, canvas. And so at any moment, this guy could plunge to his death. And right. No wonder, he, but he was smiling when he landed, and the guy was like, you know, why is he so happy? Well... Because he just finished half the beer uh, and planned on finishing the entire case long before he ever got to New Orleans. That's an amazing so, story. It's a do great s- stunt. So, yeah. do we know did did they did he land in New Orleans with the? Well, he made case, it to New Orleans, or? but he did, apparently didn't have any beer when he got there. So, that part of the story wasn't necessarily true. So, oh, that's amazing. And then <laughs> they, I love how you talk about all the different uh, promotional items that were given out. Um, Things like glasses with the logo and corkscrews, beer steins, mugs. So he was the father of swag, I guess. We yeah, would call really. It today. I mean, you know, we, really, if you go into like, oh, and again, we go back to that, you know, because it's the only thing we've got to compare it to now. But if you go on the Anheuser Busch Brewery tour and they've got that huge gift shop, yeah, you know, that's got everything. I mean, you know, playing cards and glasses and everything. Yeah, that's that's not anything new. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been going around for you know more than a hundred years now. Oh man! I mean, they were cranking out that stuff. Anything to promote, anything to that name placement. I mean, you know, he was the Don Draper of you know the Gilded Age. You right. know, he was already just cranking all the stuff. And you know, Adolphus Bush was doing the same thing. Everybody, of course, was. right? But but the idea that they had once they started bottling the beer of simplifying their labels so that it would it would be 
eye-catching to consumers who didn't know who the limps were, Yeah. right? So you end up with beer in, well, let's go back to Pennsylvania. Your, your beer is shipped to Pennsylvania, who may not be familiar with the Limp Brewery in St. Louis, but there's a really easy-to-read, understand label that explains that this is a, a pale beer. Well, then you know, hey, I, I like that kind, mm-hmm. so that's the kind you buy. And um, that was sort of the idea behind these labels and behind that Limp Shield, which, you know, as, as I'm sure, and we'll get to it later, but I think probably a lot of our listeners know that the original Limp Shield went on to be used after Prohibition, went on to be used by Falstaff Beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joseph uh, Grisadick bought the name and the, the logo to the from the Limp's Falstaff Beer and started brewing his own yep. after Prohibition. And that logo that you see, it didn't say Falstaff at the time, it just said Limp on it. But that's the original logo that the Limp's used, and they put it on all their beer. And that was a trademark, that was a name brand trademark that was a new idea at the time. Nobody had ever thought of doing something quite like that with their beer before. So, um, you know, this guy was way ahead of his time. I mean, he was a genius when it came to building a company and creating, you know, a brand the way that he did. And that's what, I mean, that's what took this from a neighborhood brewery, you know, cranking out a few barrels a week, which is what his father was doing, to this gigantic national company. And, you know, that was one side of his personality. And then, of course, after the death of his son and his best friend, then we saw the other side of his personality, right. which was much, much darker. Yeah, um, and he we, was a, we can dive into that. Right. I too. think I think now we would think of that as, as sort of, and I think that maybe this explains why you have so much depression and suicide in one family. Um, I think, you know, now we might, you know, classify that as like being bipolar or something. You know, he's got these very high highs that that take him to you know incredible success and then these horrific lows that lead him eventually lead him to committing suicide yeah i mean a lot of times you don't get one without the other exactly uh, unfortunately exactly. but it's interesting because i didn't think about it so much um until this episode that you know not only was was this family um such such innovators in in feats of engineering but also in advertising oh, and yeah. and just building a brand like you said and so they that i think was that combination of different um, you know, innovations where that allowed them to succeed so much. And because you talked a little bit about the feats of engineering where they would spend a lot of money on prototypes and stuff like right. the uh, um, artificial refrigeration and right. stuff, you know, right. and a lot of times waste a lot of money, but you only need to figure it out once. Right. And exactly. they did. And, and they did. And I think that was, I think that was William's side of everything. I think that, you know, building up the, the company the way that he did, you know, and, and uh, all the construction that was done and all the innovations and the, the things that were not being attempted in any other brewery in the country, I think that was his side of it. I think the creative side of all that was Frederick. Mm-hmm. I think he was the one who was behind a lot of the advertising ideas and a lot of the, you know, putting together these distribution networks for the beer once it got away from St. Louis. And I think that the name branding and all that, kind of, I think that was his area and I think that that's why, you know, one of the things that was so tragic about his death was this was a loss of like half the company. You know, this was the, 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 the creative side of the company died with Frederick. And, you know, they had enough of his ideas to keep going, but not for that much longer. You know, once William was gone, I mean, things started to really go downhill. I mean, after 1911, there were no, there was nothing ever done at the factory ever again. They stayed in business, 
but there were no further innovations. There was no building that was done. There was no construction, nothing after that amount of time. Yeah. You know? Well, let's talk about Frederick a little bit because I think it's, it's very interesting to me that you have this empire being built and then you have a father that's leading a lot of it and that he... I don't know whether he picks it out or recognizes or something, but it's not his first son. Right, but he rec- he recognizes right. something in this particular child where he says, "This is this is my guy. This is the one." And and you know, Frederick follows up on that. You know, whether it's because of his namesake from you know mm-hmm. his, his father's best friend, or I mean, he went to Wash U for the engineering and stuff, but then he'd follow his his dad to work every day and be in the office. Like, he he was being groomed to be oh, you know a great businessman, and then I think that's what kind of sort of also makes his death so tragic and traumatic was that he seemed so on top of it and he seems like the least likely one to go out you know right exactly yeah i um i just think he loved it more than his definitely more than his brothers did Mm -hmm. i mean i think billy was you know i mean we've talked about him a little and we'll talk about him more but i mean here was a guy who you know was just not in, not <laughs> interested. He was not interested in. I don't think in working in general. Yeah. But definitely not interested in running the company. And Lewis had other interests too. I mean, his he was you know he grew up and got interested. I mean, he went to the Brewers Academy and stuff just like Billy did. Right. So he knew the trade, but it wasn't anything that it wasn't. He didn't love it. Mm-hmm. You know, he he loved horses and racehorses. I mean, that's what he, he became famous for breeding racehorses where, you know, uh, Frederick just loved it. He just loved the company, loved the business. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I, I'd often, I used to refer to Frederick as his father's favorite son. I'm not sure that's correct. Yeah. I think it's more of a case of they had the most in common. Mm-hmm. And I think they were the closest because, you know, um, they were the most alike, yeah. you know, and I think that that's probably why, you know, he, Frederick gravitated toward it where the other boys didn't. And, that was, you know, that became, that's why they became so close. Mm-hmm. And then when, with his death at 28, I mean. Yeah, that's my age right I now. I mean, that's insane. That's I mean, that's so just, scary. You know, a guy who's that alive and that vibrant. I mean, you know, he was out doing stuff. He was busy all the time. And, you know, and, and I've heard people say he worked himself to death. I, I don't think that's what it was. I think it was a, I think he had a, a problem with his heart. I mean, mm. I think it was a heart condition. Right, He was right. probably born with. Um, and when his heart wouldn't beat enough, he couldn't breathe. And that's what, you know, and so doctors didn't know that much at the time. So they just assumed it was a problem with his lungs, sent him to California and they sent him to dry, which was standard in those days. You know, um, you know, people with tuberculosis were always sent out West to where it was dry because they thought, well, that'll help him breathe easier. So this was the same thing. Frederick's having trouble breathing, um, because I, I think his heart's not, not pumping the way it should. And so they send him out somewhere where it's dry and he, you know, he feels better for a while, but it's still, it's not going to cure when you've got probably a degenerative heart condition, Yeah, which is what he ended up dying of heart failure at 28, you know, which, I mean, the whole thing, what, what made it so sad is he's got a young wife and a one-year-old daughter. She never remarried, uh, but William took care of her. He made sure that he cashed out all of Frederick's, I didn't put this in the thing, there's a lot of details, but um, he cashed out all of Frederick's stocks in the company and gave them all to Irene, which is, that's not something that was normally done in those days. Right. I mean, you wouldn't, I mean, I, again, I, I hate to say this in, the, in this era, but you wouldn't give a, a woman that kind of money. But the limps thought differently. They were, not, they were much more lot. progressive than, yeah. I mean, look at, look at Elsa, how she lived her entire life, didn't get married until she was much older. And she just did whatever she wanted and her father never stopped her from doing it. I think probably admired her, 
you know, the way that she was. Yeah. And so, you know, he gave Irene all that money and then, and she never remarried and lived the rest of her life. Again, though, that tells you how much money they had lived the rest of her lives on just his stock options. Jeez, you know, I can't so, imagine. Right. So it's, you know, um, but it's, it's sad. I mean, it's really sad. And I think that when you've built a company with someone like that, and then suddenly they're gone, not only is it your child who's still young, you know, well, you're not supposed to be burying your kids, you know, right. and at 28, you've got a son who, you know, you, you hoped would take over the company when you decide to retire and he's just gone. Yeah. And I think that in a situation of, you know, pr- maybe the kind of situation that he had, uh, mentally speaking, you know, um, that he took it extremely hard and just couldn't bounce back from it. Right. And then and when he starts to bounce back, then the other gets hit again. And I think know? and it, it speaks to what we were just talking about a little bit earlier, but it's, it's basically the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? You know, right. he's so high up there, and then this tragedy just strikes him, and so he just falls crazy hard and starts to come back a little bit, and then... His best friend Frederick Paps, to anyone who's had a, a PBR, you know, yeah. should should thank yeah, this it. man. But this is who, whom Frederick was named for, and so he starts to come back a little bit. Frederick Paps dies, and then he just plunges right back down yeah. to the bottom. Um, something that I think is really weird, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but uh, I'm definitely curious about, and this, you know, because you could spark up so many conspiracies about this and stuff. But it's that okay. So William says he's not feeling very well goes back to his room or whatever, ends up committing suicide, but, but he got dressed for work, you know? Why, know. why would you I, I, do well, that? I, I, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways to look at that. Um, Not to say that I can put myself in that mindset, no, you I, know? No, yeah, yeah, but I neither in my t-shirt and shorts. Right, but I, I just wouldn't, in, I wouldn't think you'd get dressed I, to do that. I don't no, know. I don't know. I, I, you know, I think that, but you got to remember that this is a different time and a, a proper family and, you know, maybe this was a spur of the moment decision because he didn't never left a note and he certainly didn't. I mean, there were, I'm sure other people besides Henry Volkamp, the secretary who feared the worst, mm-hmm. you know, and then remember that those things he was writing, those were in hindsight. Right. So, right. you know, he, and he may have thought, oh, wow, I wonder, you know, I hope he doesn't kill himself, but I doubt it. I doubt that even crossed his mind. I mean, we hadn't, you know, started on this trend of family suicides by this time. <laughs> this and started the trend, well, This right? was the start of the trend. And, you know, he so we got dressed and maybe he just decided, you know what, he went back to his room because it wasn't feeling good. And maybe he was laying on the bed and finally just said, you know what, enough's enough. I can't take it anymore. And decided to shoot himself. I mean, everybody had a... a a pistol most people carried around with them all the time i mean we know billy did as we'll hear more about later yeah but um you know maybe he just decided you know i i can't take any more and that was the end Mm. but we'll never know i mean we're never going to know what ran through his mind because he didn't he didn't leave his thoughts behind for us so i don't know never gonna know what went through his mind except for that bullet i'll cut cut that out um (laughs) yeah that no it's that's very upsetting and i think I mean, I guess there were warning signs when a guy that's, you know, running sure. this company and, and is very social and, you know, passes out paychecks to people and then eventually it just doesn't want to be seen and starts traveling underground to I avoid know. people. Right. But I mean, how, how much lower can you get literally yeah, in this case? Yeah. You know, um, I don't know. I, you know, I can't help but think, though, when you when you when you've plunged that deep into a depression, I can't believe that he'd never done that before earlier in his life that there'd never been instances when he was very low Mm -hmm. you know what i mean that seems to go with the condition 
of the high highs and the low lows. Right. And I'm sure there probably were other instances of things that didn't go right, but we don't, we're never going to know the ins and outs of their daily lives. I mean, we're, we're, we're never going to know. I mean, we can't, we can't know what went on then, but I can't help but think there probably were other things leading up to this, but this was like the, you know, this was the, the blow that really to end it all. But on the other hand, though, I think it says a lot that this was noticed not just by family and friends, but by the guys who worked for him. They yeah. were the ones talking about it. And these were just guys, and these were ordinary working guys, you know, in the early 1900s, probably not a lot of education. A lot of them we know were single because they lived, literally lived at the brewery. In a really hot brewery. Right, in a really yeah. hot dormitory room. Yeah. And even the men with families, but they liked him so much that, you know, every single one of them came to the funeral. And that was one of the things that I had remembered from some of the writing that was done at the time, that these these were all these, you know, grizzled, burly guys who'd worked for him for 30 years were standing weeping right. over his coffin. Openly, you yeah. know, openly, and that's just not something that's common at that time, mm. you know. And um, so, I mean, this is how well-liked and how admired he was you know, in throughout the city. And then all these things that come out after his death about the, you know, the hundreds of thousands of dollars he gave to charity every year. Nobody had any idea. Nobody knew. This was all in his papers and his will after, you know, after his death, when the reading of the will took place and that kind of thing, they found out all the things he'd been doing that nobody knew about. So that I think, you know, makes it worse. I mean, it makes this whole thing even sadder, you know, and, and I think again, it's one of those things why I didn't want why I wanted to do five plus episodes about the lamps is because they have become cartoon characters to people. All people think about is, oh, yo, you mean the people who lived in the haunted house who all shot themselves? They don't understand all of the 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 intricacies of these people's personalities. And I, I mean, like I said, we're never going to know everything there is to know about them or their daily lives. But I thought if we could at least try and present this as something so that people realize that these weren't just characters in a story, right. that they were real people, you know, um, and really I'm sad. I mean, this is like heartbreaking of stuff, course. you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, a loss of uh, people who start a lot of innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you talked about a lot of donations, yeah. you know, um, bottled beer which if i love you yeah, know in right, america right, so, right. so you know all jokes aside These but no it's we very tragic have if they hadn't popularized it. of sure course. budweiser they bottled their beer you know they right. started bottling budweiser first but you know and and the pasteurization technique that they started using but it was the limps that popularized it all over the country mm-hmm. that you didn't get it just in st louis now you could get it anywhere yeah. you know and i think that we owe we owe them a lot not just in beer but you know right. just the whole story right There's a lot there you know? of course yeah so okay uh you know we alluded to it a little bit before but spoiler alert there's going to be more suicide in the next episode um <laughs> but do we know anything about um, are there particular stories about the ghost of William in particular at well, all, or do there, we do we know are, that? Yeah, I mean there are plenty of stories about the the Lint Mansion, which we'll we'll get into that yep. in depth in the final episode mm-hmm. in the series. Um, we'll talk more about it, and so, but yes, William does, according to some of the stories and some of the sources, does make some afterlife appearances, mm-hmm. um, and there have also been stories that have linked 
um, the the cave, the the tunnel that ran to the cave to, connected to the brewery. That yeah. Some of the hauntings connected to that were of William. I mean, I know when I was down there, that was who I hoped to see. You know, of course. walking through the 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 haze down there in the in the you know in the cave below the street there. But um, there have been some some stories about the house, uh, and then but I think probably I think the main I don't. Again, spoiler alert to the last episode, but I think the main ghost that haunts the house, and there are probably others, but I think Charles is a, a very strong presence yeah. in the house. And we'll talk more about that later. But um, but yeah, I mean, there are some of the stories that have been linked to William, which mm-hmm. which makes sense. I mean, yeah, of course. You know, this is a this is a guy who, um, you know, in his lowest depths of life, you know, took his own life and ended it abruptly right in the house so why you know why wouldn't he not have some unfinished business? of course somebody on top so. as well that you know and decides to yeah. to end it uh and then you know is also his his son frederick passing is the reason he built the mausoleum right. at, at belfontaine right. or right. so I, and i want to go check that out sometime you, yeah, you mentioned in our cemetery yeah, episode we'll sure it's amazing it. yeah it's it is amazing and it's uh it's not one of the most ornate in the cemetery but it's big yeah I mean, it's big it had to have cost a fortune and it gets even in even in those dollars even in 1901 dollars and it gets gets filled up quickly as uh, we, yeah, will, we will talk does. about You're right it sure does all right. Well, I guess we should wrap this up mostly because we've got like 82 limp episodes to go still. So we'll have plenty more time to talk about the limps. We um, add one every time. Yeah, we do every one. time it gets longer. Yeah. I, well, every time we start thinking about it, we're like, well, maybe this should be in this episode. So anyway, hang in there because things are going to get weird and they're going to just keep getting increasing, increasingly grim and spookier as we go. But yeah. anyway, thank you very much for listening. We we hope that you've had a good time with. Uh, our series within a series and the series itself. And uh, please share it with your friends, pass it on to people. Um, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we can't thank you enough for those of you who have done it. Um, it makes it easier for people to find us. And people do, um, sometimes I wonder why, but people do like this show. They do. <laughs> and it's nice when people leave us some feedback, um, you know, to let us know how, what they think of the show, how much they love the show, and how awesome we are. We love those That's reviews. always what they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, um, it does make it easier for people to find the show who are not as smart as you are who already know about it uh so leave us a review even if you listen online or listen on soundcloud or whatever leave us a review on itunes and um with that said uh i will turn things over to cody and we'll wrap this episode up yeah we will see you again in two weeks and it's been really great honestly because people have started like to recognize me now and reach out to me about the podcast and it's it's so good to finally be known for more than just my good looks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and my big nose. And so it's been awesome because people now ask me about ghosts and I get to have awkward they don't conversations. Ask you about pizza? I Some, ask we'll you see. About pizza. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, speaking of pizza, yeah. we have leftovers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have some links to Troy's books, as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. 
Find Troy on Instagram at Troy Taylorgram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author Page, or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Some of the music in this episode was written and recorded by Charlie Brockus at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton, Illinois.